rewards and prizes can provide uh, some tremendous motivation in our lives. I don't know if you've ever thought about just how much rewards uh, motivate us to do difficult things. Suppose I told you that you had a year to train for a marathon, and that if you finished that marathon, that there'd be a prize waiting for you at the end of the race. Naturally, your first question would be, what is the prize? You'd want to know what the prize is before you commit. You'd want to know if, as we say around here, if the juice is worth the squeeze. And if the prize was something that you didn't really want anyways, then you wouldn't put yourself through the grueling training of, of trying to complete a marathon for an entire year, right? You wouldn't go through all of that for something that you don't really want. But what if I told you that the prize was $100 million, right? I'm not a runner, but I can promise you I'd become one real quick if you told me that there was $100 million waiting for me a year from now if I finished a marathon. That prize would motivate me to go through the difficulty of, of training for a marathon. Rewards matter. The Apostle Paul calls the Christian life a race. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9.24, he urges us, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. And throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen that this book is primarily a call for the saints to endure. Revelation makes it clear that in this life, we will have troubles, suffering, persecution, temptation. But those who conquer by holding fast to the gospel will be rewarded. And Revelation chapter 21 and 22 describes the reward. It's the prize at the end of the race. It's a description of heaven or the new heaven and the new earth as Revelation 21 describes it. And these chapters also function as the second half of the bookends of the Bible. So scripture starts with creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and then in Genesis Three, we learn that sin leads to the fall and death enters into the world. And the rest of Scripture unfolds God's plan of redemption, which culminates in the ultimate restoration that Revelation chapter 21 and 22 describes. So these two chapters at the end of the Bible describe the fulfillment of the longings of God's people. The problem is that many people don't understand it very well. Misconceptions about heaven have consequences in our day-to-day lives. What we believe about heaven in the afterlife will have a direct impact upon how we live right now. Many people, even well-meaning Christians, get their theology of heaven from heaven tourism books written by people who claim to have died and gone to heaven and then come back. These books are popular in part due to the misconception that the Bible is silent about heaven, that the Bible doesn't really say very much about heaven. But as we're going to see in a moment, that's not true. The Bible actually has a lot to say about heaven. And God's Word tells us all that we need to know about heaven, and it doesn't look anything like what books like Heaven is for Real are selling. And other people imagine heaven as some strange, confusing place up in the clouds where we fly around with angel wings. Growing up, I had this view of of heaven as an immaterial place where I'd float around on a cloud and play soft music on a harp for all of eternity. I remember thinking 
as a kid, this no joke, I remember thinking, I really don't want to die yet because I want to enjoy living and having a physical body and getting married and having kids and all those things. I, I thought of heaven like an eternal church service, and for me, church was boring, so why in the world would I be in a hurry to go there? That wasn't very exciting. Why would I want to endure for that? And that's precisely the problem. Because people don't understand heaven, they don't look forward to it. For some of you, maybe you're even scared at the thought of, of heaven because there's so much unknown to it. This deterioration in our theology of heaven is a tragedy because for centuries, the hope of the new heaven and new earth has given the church the strength to endure with joy. Scripture is filled with promises of the reward that awaits the saints when our race is finished. So it's imperative that we know how the story is going to end. It's imperative that we understand the prize at the end of the race if we're going to endure. And that's what Revelation chapter 21 helps us to do. So let's read chapter 21 and then I'll pray and then we will dive in. Here's what God's word says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. 
And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. Your word is trustworthy. Your word is true. I thank you for these promises contained in Revelation 21. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth, to teach and to preach. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me, that you would work through my weakness, and that you would help all of us to understand and rightly apply your word to our lives so that we can endure to the end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this passage comes on the heels of Revelation chapter 20, where, uh, and Doug talked about this last week, where the final judgment before the great white throne takes place. Just before that, we read in chapter 20 that Satan was thrown down forever, and at the great white throne the dead are judged, and in verse 11 we read, from his presence the earth and sky fled away. So this passing away of the old makes way for the new. As Satan and evildoers are cast out and and the earth in its current form dissolves, the stage is set for the new creation in Revelation chapter 21. There's no more corrupting influence. There's no more sin. Wickedness, evil, Satan have been judged. And essentially, these two chapters here, Revelation 21 and 22, describe what we have to look forward to. It's a glimpse into the future for those who are in Christ, and it is glorious. The main point of the sermon this morning is that knowing we will live with Christ forever then helps us to live for Him now. Knowing that we will live with Christ forever then helps us to live for Him now. And I want to draw your attention to five promises regarding heaven in this passage that we can look forward to. But before I do, I want to emphasize that the first promise is the greatest one of all. It's this first promise upon which all the other promises about heaven hinge. Without this first promise, none of the other promises about heaven matter at all. What is the first promise? 
The first promise is that God will reside with His people. That is the greatest thing about heaven. Verse 3 of our passage, John hears a loud voice from the throne declaring, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. The ultimate prize of heaven is Christ. That's the purpose towards which all of Scripture has been heading. Just think back with me briefly to the beginning of the story of Scripture. In the garden, humanity had, a, had perfect fellowship with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, mankind was separated from God and sentenced to death. Because, because we have all sinned, now sin comes between us and God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. So the rest of Scripture is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus came as both God and man so that He could die on the cross for our sin. He died to remove the sin that separates us from God so that we could be reconciled to Him and dwell with Him so that Revelation 21 and 22 could be possible. It's this redemption that paves the way for this restoration. So if you have trusted in Christ alone, then positionally you are righteous before God. Nothing comes between you and God any longer. You are forgiven. He's removed your sins from His mind as far as the east is from the west. And yet, we're still awaiting the consummation of God's plan in its fullness. Because as Paul says, although we know God in part, we see as in a mirror dimly right now. We know the Father because we know the Son, but we have not yet looked upon God face to face. We don't yet know what it feels like exactly to be held and and caressed in in the arms of our Heavenly Father in His immediate presence, seeing the full manifestation of His glory. But in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have complete and unhindered access to God. The next chapter, 22 and verse 3 and 4 goes on to describe it in more detail. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. Just don't... Let's linger on that for a second. Don't move on too quickly from that. They will see His face. You will look upon the face of God, Yahweh. And His name will be on our foreheads. The throne of God will be in our midst. So everywhere we go, we will enjoy the complete manifestation of His presence. In in the Old Testament, God dwelt among Israel in the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness. And then in the temple when when they arrived in the promised land that Solomon built. And the, full, the manifestation of His presence was, was located in a, a specific place, in the most holy place, within the tabernacle and within the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And only the high priest could enter into that area, and he could only do so once a year after offering sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of the people. But when Revelation 21 and verse 15 and 16 describes the dimensions of the new Jerusalem, 
it says that the length and the width and the height are 12,000 stadia. That's about 1,500 miles. So it's this perfect cube. 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep. And the purpose isn't to give us literal dimensions. As, you've, as we've talked about before, uh, numbers have symbolic importance in the book of Revelation. Twelve is the number of, perfect, of perfection and completion. And even more importantly, uh, as I said, the city is a perfect cube. So this is an allusion to the most holy place, which was also a perfect cube. What the vision is describing here in Revelation 21 is that all of the new creation will be like a giant most holy place. Everywhere we go, the full manifestation of God's presence will be there. God dwelling with us will be the greatest joy in heaven. This is the promise that upholds every other promise. The joy in heaven is is not that your family members will be there, or that you're going to have a mansion on a street of gold, or even that you'll never die. The joy of heaven is that you'll have God. While our resurrected bodies and the rewards and the renewed creation will be glorious, it would all be meaningless without God. That's because there's no good apart from God. If God is not there, then life is not there. Pleasure is not there. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. And essentially the entire point of the book was that God is the greatest treasure that the gospel gives us. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18 says that, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ died for us so that we could have God. Or Jesus puts it this way in John 17, 3, when he's praying to the Father, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you sent. So what's the, the essence of eternal life? It's that we would know God. Knowing God is the essence of eternal life. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor and a preacher from the 1700s, wrote this. And I want to quote this at length because I think it's just an amazing, amazing um, quote. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the foundation. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Are you looking to God as your greatest treasure? Or are you trying to find satisfaction in the drop while neglecting the ocean? There are many good gifts that God gives us, both now and in eternity. But these gifts are not intended to replace God. They are intended to point us to Him. The the essence of sin is that we worship God's gifts and His 
creatures rather than the creator himself. That's essentially what sin is. But if we're going to be wholly satisfied in God for all of eternity in heaven, then it it makes no sense for us to look elsewhere for satisfaction in worldly things. So whatever else you may be looking to to make you happy, whether that's the perfect family or a larger bank account or sexual pleasure, I can assure you that there's nothing God could give you better than the gift of himself. Nothing. This is the point of Jesus' parable about the, the treasure hidden in the field. Do you remember that parable? He says the kingdom of heaven is, if, is, is, is as if a man uh, was walking through a field and he found some treasure. And so he goes and he, he buries the treasure. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he owns so that he can buy the field. Because he knows that that field is far more valuable than everything else that he has. Jesus says, that's what it's like to discover me. That's what it's like to discover the kingdom of God. It's discovering that Christ is far more valuable, infinitely more valuable than everything else this world has to offer. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it looks like to be born again. Ultimately, it's only those who are looking to Jesus as their treasure now who will have Jesus as their greatest pleasure in heaven. Verse 7 and 8 make that clear in our passage. John writes that the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the testable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The promise of being with God forever is here to help the saints endure. And one way you can be sure that you conquer and hold fast is by treasuring Christ now. So how, how do you know if you're doing this? Well, you'll find yourself desiring to meditate on His Word. You'll find yourself desiring to pray. You'll find yourself wanting to be around God's people to worship with them, and to be held accountable. You'll find yourself being more and more repulsed by sin that hinders fellowship with Him. If that doesn't describe you, then plead with God to change your heart this morning. Repent of any idols or cheap God substitutes that you may have been turning to. You do not want to find yourself outside the new heaven and the new earth on the last day. What a tragedy that would be to miss out on this glorious future. For those who conquer, though, not only will we enjoy God forever, but we will enjoy Him in the new creation. So what what will life actually be like in heaven? What's that going to be like? This leads to promise number two, and it's that God will restore His creation. God will restore His creation. In verse 1, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verse 5, the Lord declares, Behold, I am making all things new. Contrary to popular belief, heaven is not some far-off land out there on another planet or in another universe. And this earth will not be utterly destroyed and wiped away forever. God's purpose from the beginning has been to restore creation because creation is good. Yes, It has been corrupted by sin, but that does not change God's declaration in Genesis 1 when he saw everything that he made and he said it was very good. 
There used to be a popular Christian slogan that said, this world is not my home. Now, and in one sense, that is true for Christians. Hebrews 13, 14 says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So, if by the world, when you say this world is not my home, if by world you mean the idolatrous culture that's opposed to God, then yes, it's true that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But it would be incorrect to say that this earth is not my home. Because it is. And it will continue to be for all eternity for Christians. Now that's not to say that we know exactly what it will be like in its glorified and restored state. But we do know that it will be a material earth that you can touch and taste and smell and hear and see. It will be a physical creation. One of the clearest passages in the Bible on this is Romans chapter 8, verse 20 to 23. Let me read that for you. Paul writes this, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, Not only do Christians eagerly wait for the day when we will have new resurrected bodies, but creation itself groans as it waits for full restoration. The surprising truth about heaven is that we will dwell on a new earth. We will not depart earth to go to some foreign place called heaven. In the new creation, heaven will actually come down to earth. After all, heaven is where God is, and the dwelling place of God will be with man. This is what is meant by the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that John sees. So if you want to know what the ultimate heaven is like, the best place to start looking is around you. Everything good about this present creation will be in the new creation, except without the corrupting influence of sin and death. There will be lands to explore, music to sing, hugs to give, sunsets to watch, animals to marvel at, food to taste, wine to drink. After all, we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will never run out of wonders and pleasures to explore and enjoy, and we will do it all in the presence of God. And we'll never be tempted to worship or desire these gifts more than God. And what's even better is that it will last forever. And that leads to the third promise. God will resurrect our bodies. God will resurrect our bodies. You will not be an immaterial spirit floating around in the air. Your body will be raised from the dead in a glorified state. That means that your body will be far more glorious and wonderful than it is right now. We don't know exactly what our glorified bodies will be like, but we do know that they will be like our current bodies, only better. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, kind of starting in verse 35 and on. You could go read it later. 
But in this passage, he compares our earthly body and our heavenly body to a seed and a fully grown plant. So, like, for example, a sunflower seed is simply a sunflower in seed form. And once the seed is planted into the ground and then it sprouts, it take, its body takes on a more glorious form. In the same way, our perishable bodies, Paul says, will be buried in the ground and they will be raised imperishable and glorious. And probably the most glorious thing about our new bodies is that they will never die or grow old or break down. Revelation 21.4 tells us that there will be no death or pain in the new creation. What an encouraging promise for those who struggle with debilitating pain or disease. God's promise to you is that soon and very soon, all of your tears will be wiped away. All the frustration of doctors not being able to figure out how to help you will be a distant memory. You will never experience pain again. It's good and right to pray for healing now, but we can, we can be hopeful knowing that even if healing does not come on this side of heaven, it will come. God will restore your body. And this is all possible because Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. He is the firstborn of the dead, Revelation 1.5 says. We have everlasting life in Him. Friends, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, then we are still lost and without hope. We are dead in our sins. And there is no good news. There is no future. There is no heaven. Only death awaits. But Jesus is alive. He has risen bodily from the dead. And and we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who can bear witness to Jesus' resurrection. And He is coming back again. And He will raise bodily those who have trusted in Him. That is good news. But... What will, be, what will we be raised forever to do? This leads to the fourth promise. God will reverse the curse on work. Now you might be tempted to think that work is a result of the fall. Maybe you feel like that when you have to go to work on Mondays. But it's not. God put Adam in the garden to work it and to steward creation before Adam and Eve had sinned. Work in and of itself is good. We were made to work. There's a reason you feel so good when you accomplish something. For me, there is nothing more satisfying than having a freshly mowed lawn that I just finished, right? Like you're just watching the progress as you're going and you're walking behind that push mower and you're watching that grass get cut and you smell the smell of the freshly cut grass and then you stand back and marvel at your glorious masterpiece as your yard looks so It just feels good, right? Because we've accomplished something. But nothing feels worse than working hard for something only to see it all go up in smoke, right? Like you spend all this energy on something and then all your work goes to waste. Maybe you've experienced that before. Part of the curse of the fall was that God cursed the ground. He told Adam that the ground would now bring forth thorns and thistles. Work became difficult, frustrating, and tedious. But in the new creation, the ground will not bear thorns and thistles. Thieves will not plunder what we've worked so hard to produce. Again, Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, it says, and His servants will serve Him. We will continue to serve God. We will continue to work in heaven. 
We will worship Him and we will exercise dominion over the new creation with God. And our work will not be frustrating but satisfying. Just think with me about the parable of the talents for a a moment. You remember the parable of the talents Jesus told where He gives... Uh, The master gives three servants uh, talents to steward. One, he gives ten talents. To another, he gives five. And to another, he gives one. And the one with the ten talents and the five talents, they were faithful and they, 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 uh, they reproduced on the master's investment. Do you, do you remember what the faithful servant in the parable of the talents was promised? Do you remember what the master promised him? Let me read it to you. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 23, he says, this is what will be said to faithful stewards. In heaven, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we will enter into the joy of exercising dominion over the new creation for the glory of God, continuing the work that Adam and Eve had started. So in heaven, we will be able to cultivate, build, Create and care for creation. We'll write songs. We'll read. We'll sing praises. We'll grow plants. We'll cook food. We'll build structures. And we won't do it to build our own empire or ego, but for God's glory. The fifth promise that I want to point out to you, this is the last point, is that God will remove all corrupting influences. God will remove all corrupting influences. Not only will will there be no more death in the new creation, there will be no more sin. And there will not be the possibility of another fall. Verse 2 of chapter 21 says this. John says, I saw, uh, or sorry, the end of verse 1, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And we've talked about this before in Revelation that the sea represents the forces of chaos and evil. This isn't teaching that there won't be water or oceans in heaven. It means that Satan and sin will not be there. And that's really good news. In the new heaven, in the new earth, the beauty and wonder of creation will still be there, but we will no longer be tempted to worship it instead of God. Rather, everything beautiful and wonderful in the new creation will only serve to increase our worship of God. Because of the complete absence of any foe or corrupting influence, we will be at perfect peace. And this is emphasized in verses 9 through 21. In in verse 9, an angel tells John, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. But when John looks in verse 10, he sees the holy city Jerusalem. Both images represent the church. And what he sees is amazing. Two things stand out. First, this city that depicts the new Jerusalem is beautiful. It radiates the very glory of God. It says in verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. In the new heaven and the new earth, all the lingering influences of sin will be completely gone. So that that besetting sin in your life that grieves you so much will never be a temptation again. It'll never be a temptation. Your fight will be over. Your race will be finished. You won't desire anything besides God because to do so would be unthinkable and impossible since you will always be able to look upon His face. 
and there will be no remembrance of your sin. Like a bride adorned for her husband, the church will radiate the holiness and the righteousness of God. So you will have no shame in heaven. There will be nothing for you to hide. No reason to be ashamed. In Christ, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, then right now you are positionally already righteous before God, okay? We've been made new by the blood of Jesus. But we do still have indwelling sin that we're battling in our lives. And God is rooting it out through this process of sanctification that's a lifelong process that He will finish. Paul says in Ephesians 5.27 that Christ died for us so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's, that's what we see here in Revelation 21. In the, the new Jerusalem, decked out in radiant white and precious jewels. You can be assured that God will finish this work. One of my favorite promises in all the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Paul says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Second, so the city is beautiful and secondly, the city is secure. John writes in verse 12 that the city has a great high wall. And in verse 17, he writes that the wall is 144 cubits thick. That's, just for reference, that's about 200 feet. That's a, it's kind of over the top, is it not? That's a ridiculously thick city wall. But here's the crazy thing, is we go on to read in verse 25 that the gates are always open. So what's the point of having these massively thick walls, high walls, with open gates? The point is that there's, no, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no more enemy. There's no more foe. We are completely safe. We are completely secure. Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are gone. Never to tempt anymore. Never to deceive anymore. Never to persecute anymore. We will be at complete and perfect peace and rest. That's what we have to look forward to. No shame. No fear for all of eternity. We'll have nothing to be afraid of, no sudden disaster to be anxious about, and no reason to worry that the joy will come to an end because it will never, ever come to an end. Ever. Brothers and sisters, I hope you all are grasping just how wonderful our future is and how dreadful it would be not to be there. The point is that knowing we will live with Christ forever then helps us to live for Him now. So as we've set this vision of our glorious future before us in Revelation 21, 2-22, now the call to you, brothers and sisters, is endure, hold fast. Don't be lured and tempted by the, the, the temptations of this world. Don't give yourself to worthless idols that are going to fade away. Don't believe the lies of the devil. Hold fast, finish the race, and soon and very soon we'll be there. We're almost home. We're almost home. Hold fast to the gospel. Don't throw away your confidence, Hebrews 10 says. Let's stop living functionally like Revelation 21 is not in our Bibles. Christians don't need to grope around desperately looking to the things in this world to give them comfort or pleasure or safety. We don't need to 
despair or grumble when something that we really want doesn't go our way. We don't need to freak out and panic when it seems like God isn't answering our prayers. Our future is secure. This is why we can have joy in any circumstance. This is why we can give thanks in all circumstances. Without Revelation 21 and 22, those commands in the Bible don't make any sense. Like how could you give thanks in all circumstances if you don't know what the future holds? If it's, if it's still up in the air? How could you rejoice always? How could you count trials as joy like James 1 says if our, if our future is unstable and uncertain? Do you see what I'm saying? This ties everything in Scripture together. We need to start living like it. We need to start living like it. We have a very real enemy. Revelation makes that clear. Satan is seeking to steal and kill and destroy. He uses persecution and temptation and deception to try to get us to abandon the race, but we can keep press on by keeping our eyes on the prize that awaits us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And as they make their way forward, I'm going to close by reading uh, Philippians chapter 3. Verses 17 to 21, Um, I think this just encapsulates the message real well. I'll read this and then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to close in song. And if you are here this morning and you're not, and, and your future is not certain, you don't really know whether or not you've ever truly trusted in Christ, whether or not you're saved, I want you to know that you can know for certain this morning. If you will repent of your sin today, and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And you can know for certain what your future holds. Please don't find yourself standing outside the new heaven and the new earth on the last day. Don't don't despise God's grace. Please let today be the day of salvation by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. And maybe you're a believer here in this room and and you know that you have been placing your hope in worldly things and you've been taking your eyes off of Christ and you've been kind of looking over here at this area of your life or that area of your life for satisfaction and you know that you need to repent of whatever idol or thing you might be looking to and you need to fix your eyes back on Christ and back on His promises. Take the opportunity to do that as we're singing, as we're responding to the message this morning. Let me read Philippians 3. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. God, we thank You for the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus, we praise You as the Lamb who was slain and who is alive forevermore. Thank You for the promise of the bodily resurrection for the new creation, and for the promise that, God, you will dwell with us forever. Help us to press on by keeping our eyes on that certain and glorious future. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.